0: Hello there, and welcome back to the Real Talks podcast. After the success of the first 10 episodes with current GA players like Kevin McMenamin, Cora Staunton, and Brendan Maher, which were listened to in more than 80 countries, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to bring you another 10 unique conversations over the next couple of weeks with living legends of Gaelic games. Up first, we have the incredible O'Sheen McConville. An All Ireland winner with Armagh, Usheim was also a key member of the Cross McGlenn Rangers team that won more titles than any mantelpiece could handle. To most supporters, Usheim was living the dream throughout his playing career, but the stark reality was that away from the highs of places like Clonus and Crow Park, he was dealing with a chronic gambling addiction in his day to day life. It was a real pleasure to sit down with one of my idols to discuss the incredible life lessons he's learned along the way. My name is Alan O'Mara. And this is episode 11 of the Real Talks podcast with Armagh's Oshin McConville. Jim Marston, three men against him. It releases Andrew McCann. How they could do with a goal like the one he got two years ago against the same opposition.
1: This is inside towards Mcgrain. it comes back nicely. It's the first goal and it's scored by Oshin McConville. It brings the Armagh fans to life. They're back in it. Only a point separating the teams. 19 minutes into the second half, a vital break. Watch as McConville was on hand, taking a little pass there and crashing it past Declan O'Keefe.
0: First of all, just saying thanks, Mel, for doing it, taking the time out. I know you're a busy man, you've lots going on. In terms of a bit of background, the first series with the guys, 10 lads that were currently playing, so it was just covering all different stuff, like Sabrina Maher, Kevin McManaman, Niamh McNamee, Jamie Clark, everything and anything. And it was really just about showing the more human side to our footballers and intercounty hurlers as well. And I suppose the second season that the idea was to capture either the lads at the tail end of the career or boys that had transitioned out of the game and maybe look back with a bit of perspective, I hope. And um, obviously I've got to know you over the last couple of years and through work and through football and different things. And I actually went back to, to, read. I was reading your bio, like, and it just really struck me the success that you'd been privileged to have in terms of Armagh and, and Cross McGlenn, like, it was just the All-Ireland, six, seven Oscar titles. 10 also titles with, uh, with, oh yeah, with seven with Armagh. With Armagh, yeah. So, and there was two all stars, like the All Ireland's with Across, also titles Across, Armagh titles Across. And then the, there was the fine tally of what, I think 11 goals and 197 championship points for yourself. That's pretty good. That's yeah. Nice. That's, that's I'll, t- I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> the first question I was going to ask you was when you think about those numbers and, and sort of people throw them at you, what comes to your own mind and what do you think of, like? Um,
1: I suppose. Like I would consider myself pretty lucky to have grown up with the group of boys that I grew up with. I suppose the thing that people may or may not know is that, like, the group I grew up with from under 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, like, we were always successful. We won everything in sight. Uh, we won 521 titles in a row in Armagh. Uh, we went into senior at senior level. Uh, I remember mean, my debut at 17 thinking. It's just a you know, it's just a matter of form. Even though Cross hadn't won uh, an arm title for seven years and we're really struggling even to win championship matches and then win right. championships. And uh, you know, we all came along at the one time myself, Francie Belly, to make a tease, the Mekin T's, the of Cattle Short, uh Paul Hardy, all these guys sort of came along in and around the one sort of time. And we Was thought, that just luck? We thought no. We we had a group. We won an All Ireland Community Games mm. in Mosney, and do you know what? We also won a thing called a McGreevy Cup, which was an Ulster school's title at primary school. Okay. And you're thinking, I look back and that like, you know, that video would have been pulled out now and again, and it was amazing the amount of players we got through. Okay. Like if you go to any club in the country, it'll say we just can't get players through from even a successful minor team all Of a sudden, you might have one player who stuck at it and got mm. them through. Like from 13, from that group that was 11, 12, and 13 years of age, we probably got maybe 10 or 11 players through who were part of a panel to win yeah. in All Ireland. So, but the strange thing about going in first and foremost was that you expected to win three years had gone and we'd won nothing, and it was in the third year we actually managed to win. Um, we actually managed ...to win a, an Armagh title... ...we'd only won in Ulster... ...we'd only won All-Ireland... ...and once we got the taste for it... ...it was very hard to hold us back then... ...but I remember 12 months previous... ...we were in a place called Ballin College... ...at a tournament... ...there was four teams in it... ...we ended up winning the tournament... ...it was a social weekend... ...as much as it was anything... Right. ...so on St Patrick's Day... ...we played the final that morning... ...and we were in the club... Uh, ...rooms after... ...there was four teams... ...we were all... everybody's having a few pints... ...we were staying for the day... That, ...you know it was on... <laughs> And uh, there was a guy who walked along with Joe Cairn and a lad called Ollie McIntyre. Um, God rest him. Unfortunately, he died a number of years ago. But uh, he was at one end of the end of the social club and we were at the other. And the all our Club final was up on the TV. And he points up at the TV, boys, and he goes, he shouts down to us in the bottom corner, uh, boys, that'll be us next year. And we all hid because I could see all the other three teams laughing. Mm. And... What year was this in? Boys, that was 1986. And I uh, I could see Airboys being embarrassed. I was embarrassed because we couldn't win a championship, mm-hmm. never mind. You know, we couldn't win a championship yeah. match, never mind a championship. 12 months later, we were, that's exactly where. we were. You know, you can call it visionary, you can call it whatever it was. But, you know, once, that's, once that role started, then everybody wants to play with your club. Uh, the thing people probably don't understand about Cross is that there's nothing else, mm-hmm. unless you're playing... If you want to play a sport, you're playing Gaelic football, and that's the be-all and end-all.
0: Yeah, like, so you, you trace it back to there, and, you know, you, you see the, the boys are sitting on the bar, you're laughing, going, Jesus, like, will that be us, will it not? But obviously, that that year kick-starts what must have been an incredible journey for you, and even I was laughing, I was, I was flicking through your book last night, and the one, one of the things that struck me was just how much you obviously always wanted to play, get a football, especially for Armagh, really just burned through the pages. But in terms of that, said so I call out those those career stats and it's easy for people to look at them and think, you know, oh, he had a great time of it, like, it was unreal, it was all like, what a great ride he must have been on. But it was like, particularly the couple of earlier years where Armagh struck me and there was actually, there was, <laughs> I was laughing out loud at it. it, was like, you were a sub in one of the games and you were thinking like, I'm getting up and walking out here because this is bullshit, though. what's going on?
1: Well, I remember I suppose the low point for me was that, you know, when I first went in when well, I went in and I was like I was one seven, one eight, two, four, whatever it was in mm-hmm. game, I thought to myself, This is this is a piece of piss basically. This is this is easy. Like, you know, um I was only eighteen years of age, um, and I played the whole way through the league, I'd done well, I was dropped for the championship, didn't even get brought on the championship and I thought well, look, let's suck it up. You know, I'm sure it'll happen for me next year. Mm. Following year, played the whole way through the league. Uh, didn't get playing in the Um We were playing a match in, in Celtic Park. We were, get, we were getting beaten by Derry. Uh, Martin McQuillan, who would have been even one of the older players at that stage, was taken off. And uh, there was a player got injured, and they took Martin McQuillan back on. Back on. And I said... That, that's it that's mm. me that's me finish like and it was actually myself and Barry O'Hagan were sitting there and the two of us agreed you know that, that we'd never be back yeah but we were we were back the following year and uh, you just tried my best to go at it as, as much as I could I tried to physically develop because it was like my first year playing in the county football I was probably ten and a half stone mm. at most uh, so I had to physically develop although to be honest I wasn't getting that many hits you know or anything like that so you know that wasn't my number one goal but i, I knew i had to in some way physically develop and it was, that was coming naturally anyway and then i was introduced to some strength and conditioning not the strength and conditioning people are doing nowadays but um you know a lot of body weight and and, and i used i would like light weights i like lifting light weights uh i wasn't building muscle with you know legs of geezer and mm-hmm. Paul McGreen these boys were but uh so that was my early years. I think that was the one thing that hurt me more than anything was that you have you know, a sub on the bench who's who I seen myself was really going wild at that time, playing wild, playing with a bit of abandon, able to get scores, and I needed scores, they took a wing half back off, a corner four got injured and they put him back on again and I just thought like, what is the point? Yeah. You know, and, and I suppose those feelings lasted for a while. Was actually dropped uh off the panel completely when Brian McElinden came in. Uh he didn't take me into the to the first panel, that was I was probably 1920 at that stage. Um and you know, they took me back in for the championship. I started my first championship match that year and sort of went from there, you know.
0: Yeah, for those for, it was particularly that year or two, or say that from that day when you're when you're on the bench, it was Barry thinking, you know, effect this, we're out here. Like obviously what was to follow must have seemed like a million miles away. And I was like leading up to, I said, it was, as I was reading through all that stuff last night, I was the, the big thing that jumps around is is the 2002 final. Like, um, I suppose when you think about that day now, is that something that stays really clear in your memory and that seems like yesterday or is it something that seems really far away? Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's a strange one for me. Yeah. It's a strange one for me because, and I know you
1: probably don't want to go into this stuff today, but it's a strange one for me because I was in the midst of an addiction at the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff that was happening was passing me by, okay. Because like when people say about you know the build up must have been crazy, it was, and it was it was it was claustrophobic crazy because you did you didn't want to leave the house. Mm. But I found solace in the bookies. You know yeah. what I mean, and and that's where I would have spent a lot of time. So, from it. Yeah, that's where I would have spent a good bit of time. And uh, you know, obviously, in the bookies, you're going to get people who are going to be talking to you about about. Uh, you know, about football and the lead up and all. But the the main goal for everybody in there was to try and win a few quid. Mm. and Or I'm sure there was a lot of people like me who, you know, were reliant on it or whatever it was. So uh, a lot of that 2002 build up and aftermath would have passed me by the actual game. It's good because you can actually look back on the game and you can remember little different points about it. But a lot of the football I played in around that, time feels like an out-of-body experience for me to be honest a lot of it was uh I don't know playing from memory or you know playing like that that was your escape yeah for a lot of people you know coming up into that game they were that uh I would say tense and they were that focused that sometimes it sort of stops you playing for me it was like this is great. Like I mm-hmm. get the opportunity to run out onto the field and I get away from the other madness in my life, you know. And that was sort of, that was sort of where it was at.
0: What are the moments of of the game? That's because I and I will I come to some of the stuff that you've touched upon there afterwards. But in terms of that game, what are the what are the moments that jump out to you?
1: Well, um, missing the penalty obviously is a right. is a massive thing because. <laughs> There's a story now. Man. I'll run you through it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, There's a gay in 1953 who missed a penalty. He died a, uh, a couple of years previous to us winning the All Ireland. And at the at the the man's funeral, the uh, it was his name was Bill McCary. The mm. priest mentioned him missing the penalty in okay. 1953. That's what he was remembered yeah, as. That's, that's what That's he was known as. And
0: uh, is that going through your head when you miss it? Then
1: my, my mom was the first thing that went through my head, she right. was the one that kept reminding me of it. Mm-hmm. And she she used to say to me, you know, on many occasions, even coming up you know, on the 14 16, like she used to say to me, You don't really need to be taking penalties, do you? Like, you know, there's nobody else <laughs> trying to keep you away from the heart, yeah, like <laughs> well, there's nobody else that could, that could hit them or whatever. But yeah. I, I enjoyed the responsibility of them, Aye. and can I be honest? The majority of the free kicks that I missed down through the years or the penalties that I missed, I didn't, I didn't overthink them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And there were, I felt there was something I could handle, so I felt I was big enough. I suppose that was the one penalty that was probably bigger than me, if if that makes any sense, and I knew there was a lot of people reliant on that. I didn't kick the penalty right. I, I You know, I was holding back, and then when I kicked, when I... Ninety nine percent of the time when I kicked free kicks and penalties, I never held anything back. I always just, you know, I was, yeah. there was always conviction in what I was doing. So, uh, I suppose that was the thing that was annoying me. And as I say, lucky enough, I had half time to sort of That's gather the Was
0: it a good thing that it actually happened just before? Yeah,
1: because we had two guys who walked, um, who who walked with us that year. Who we were doing um, two sports psychologists, and one of them I, you know, was friendly with as much as okay. he was walking with us, and. Uh, you know, he, he made a few suggestions to me at time and nobody else really talked to me at time. Mm. You know, Joe never mentioned it in, you know, his halftime team talk or anything like that. So, you know, that probably helped and that wasn't an over focus on it. Like, you know, but uh, I knew yeah. I had to in some way try and make up for it. So, uh, you know, that moment, uh, probably the couple of free kicks I hit, uh, second half, which, were
0: quite, which were quite difficult. And then, and then obviously sticking to, Second of the yeah. I like, watched you know? I watched the sort of the highlights reel last night on YouTube and uh so obviously it was the penalty miss. And funny enough, I actually have a good memory of that game because I was live or we our family used to have a mobile home over in Clara Head there and there was hate the caravans that were full of our people like so we were and I was good pals with all them, so we were we were a bandwagon Armagh supporter all <laughs> summer like. And uh so I actually have real clear memories of watching that game but as I watched it last night, it was, was like the one two and you get the flick back heading on your way. And you know nowadays days you see hate before just fist that ball over the bar like I was just looking at you and I was like I know you'd, you'd missed a penalty before and I was like like this man's one hundred percent going for a goal and was that the first thing that came to your mind when you were running through there it was like I had the chance to stick this
1: uh, yeah I was sort of pretty confident yeah. that I was going to score because the mean, handy
0: option would have been to take the point and run back out and say well, yeah I'm doing a I, bit here.
1: I would say in my in my career of playing football I think I fisted the ball over the bar twice because yeah. I don't like I don't yeah. like it. And I don't like seeing players do it, and unless it's that's the
0: only yeah. option on, there's and, no way I would do that. And you went jukey near post as well. The poor keeper stuck there. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, well,
1: the the thing about uh, thing that he like if you notice the keeper like, you know, and I noticed like he was absolutely rooted to the spot. Yeah. You know, he had his far post cover like, but he was rooted to the spot. Yeah. So was, if I had a bit of power, in it, it, was there, always, yeah. it was always going to go in. But uh, the the things like the, that's just. That's playing football. That's mm-hmm. just like, and, and that is continuously my argument is that that was just me uh, going to the reserves of what I'd done at 12, 14, mm-hmm. 16, 18 uh, and playing games at, at you know, at, at inter-county level, whether they be league matches or whatever. You know, you're much better playing playing football than you are doing a million training sessions. Yeah. You never get that from a training session. Never get that from a training mm-hmm. session. Um, but you'll get it from games. And you'll get it from, as I say, pulling on the reserves that you've built up in twenty years playing football. Yeah, you know.
0: Well, and obviously you, you you had a good reserve to build on. And what was it like being one of the main go-to men in terms of score getters? Because I think like a sort of a free taker or a main attacker. Sometimes the mindset has to be a little bit different. And as I was going through the book again, there was a line jumped out at me, and you had been beating the game, and a couple of guys kick wide, and you said something like, you "No." Know, they, the boys kicked too wides, but they always kicked wides. But I kicked a few, and I meant to be better than that. Was that pressure from you, from other people, or I was just curious around that sort of that line in particular? Just jumped out at me.
1: Well, I used to I used to play along with a lad. I Better not mention his, better not <laughs> mention his name. But actually, I will mention his name. guy was a guy called Stephen Clark who used to play lacrosse. And one of the things he used to say to me was, "Will you please get me a score? Get me into the position where I can get a score." And I used to say to Stephen, there is no position yeah. where you can get a score. I could give him the ball 14 yards in front of the goals and he wouldn't score. <laughs> and I said, I used to say, but that's the difference between me and you. Like, I can't go out, win the ball in the middle of the field, put in 25 tackles, you know, in in the first five minutes of the game or, without, or walk in the way that you walk. Uh, but my job is mm. to kick the thing over the bar whenever you boys get it into me. So I just seen that as my job. That was my niche in the yeah. team. And that's why, you know, consistently, uh, you know, that I was under no illusions what my role was in the team. And my role changed, and football changed as I uh, and evolved as I played football. But I, I still knew that regardless of what my role was, or how hard I had to walk or how many holes I had to fill in from a half forward point of view, or whatever, I still had to get up the field and, sc- and mm-hmm. score. and. The strange thing is that I probably scored as much playing, playing as a half-forward as I did playing as a corner-forward, you know, and uh, I like scoring. I like <laughs> yeah. being on the end of things, and as I say, I like that responsibility. Um, I, I do see players, you know, who who morph, like, particularly Gooch, for example, who went from being their main score-getter to being their main playmaker. Mm-hmm. I never had any desire to be a playmaker. Okay, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and that wasn't—I don't think it was a selfish thing. It was just that was what it, that's what I built my sort of my football and uh, career on, and that's that's the way I started, and that's the way I wanted it to end. And you know, that's that's for me. That was a consistent thing throughout my uh, football life. Was that you know I played to get scores, regardless of where I was playing.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely. You're obviously, you're you're quite good at it as well. What, where did you think, or when you when you look back now, in terms of that, like the huge drive that you had in terms of going to get? That, I know you're saying, you know, you felt it was your job, but there's obviously an innate passion there as well, or a serious drive. Like, do you trace that back to being a younger guy playing lacrosse when you were when you were doing that for the boys that you were playing with, and it just developed, or how? Where, where do you stand on that? I
1: just think that all like the majority of that came from me being in that world. You know the family that I grew up mm. in, um, the area that I grew up in. As I say, like, like beyond the no illusions, like this is foot. This is football mm. country. This is. Uh, we don't have soccer. Yeah. We don't have rugby. We don't have athletics. We don't have a swimming pool. We do- we don't have an athletics club. We don't have. You know, if you want to go ten pin bowling, you have to drive twenty minutes mm-hmm. or whatever. That's all there is, and that's all there was growing up, so you could either fucking like it or you could lump it.
0: Do people say... Do you remember the line you used in the, the BBC documentary? I watched it again this morning. You've The not Yeah.
1: Wasn't it great to stick the two fingers up and say, regardless what you do, you can land your helicopters here, you can build your barracks on top of us, you can stop us, throw our clothes out in the street, throw our bags out, you can chase people going to training you getting trying to intimidate us, but fuck yous, we're going to win an all Ireland anyway. When we were growing up, like, we would have, like, it was oppression. Mm. We didn't see it as oppression at the time, it was just norm for us. But when we went down the street and, you know, you met a soldier and he, he stopped you and he took the bag off you and he emptied it out on the ground and he made you put your clothes back in and they wouldn't let you go certain ways to the, to the football field mm. or they landed the helicopters at all. I mean there was a serious motivation to stick the f- two fingers up and say, I don't give a fuck what you're gonna do, but we're gonna be successful. Mm. You know, and that was that was the lane I, I and that was the lane that a lot of people sort of latched on from from the documentary. Yeah, that was an incredibly
0: powerful line, like
1: Yeah, from the documentary. But like I I don't know if I was the first person ever to say that, but uh that was definitely the feeling, mm. you know, and I could feel that feeling in the dressing room. You know, I could feel that feeling in the dressing room from nineteen ninety six on, you know, because before that we just we all the stuff that was going on, like we, we seen that as that was their excuse not to be doing well. Sure. Which was which was lame, like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? As much as you have to be proud of what we've done since, you know, you have to say that we wasted ten years feeling sorry for ourselves as well. So and that's the thing and, and, and that's what I'm saying about this uh, part of the country being just completely football orientated. Mm. Uh, and we have no excuses, you know, and we have, we've had, you know, when I was growing up, we had one guy who did the majority of the coaching for right. under 10, 12, 14, 16, 18. Like when you think about it now, it's absolutely insane how the man done it. Like he was in the football field seven days a week, mm. but he did it. And, uh and for that love and passion of, of all it was for the community. And we're still living off that mm. because all it takes then is two or three players every year
0: just to add to a squad that's already... Yeah, you've you know, got your pretty, base.
1: ...pretty good, yeah, you know?
0: Yeah, like, I think it comes across really strongly there just how important football was during that spell. and But I suppose in contrast to that, one of the lines, again, you're probably thinking I was never get out of the book for the last couple of days, like, but it was... It's a good reminder because I've never read the book. Yeah, I've not. No. <laughs> um, it's obviously your words, and look, I always, I know how that world works as well, but... The, one of the lines used was that, like, was like, and coming on to the gambling aspect of it was, it was you said gam- it was gambling was my life and football was my escape. How, and I, look, I don't want to go down the road. Me and you have talked about this before, yeah. where you end up having to rehash all the story completely. And But just in terms of that line, what does that mean to you now? Thinking, so it says, it says, gambling was my life and football was my escape. And really, I suppose growing up, you would have thought it was going to, football was going to be your yeah. life. Do you get me? Yeah. Just what does that sound like? Or what does that make you think of now?
1: uh it just it just seems so uh, my life now seems so far removed Mm. from from all that but i understand that it was part of my life but i just like sometimes like i think about it and i think like how did i end up how did that end up being the case for me Mm. and uh and like as i say again it seems as if it was somebody else living that life when I consider where I am today yeah. and some of the stuff I, I do and and you know what I base myself, what a what a what credentials I suppose I base myself on, what values I have, you know, day to day, and when I consider where I was then, like, you know, it, it doesn't fill me. It doesn't exactly fill me with pride. No, more like that, you know. Um, like I'm over the shame of it and I'm over the guilt and mm. all that, but uh. I do have to take myself back there sometimes to give myself a kick up the ass and kind of check in. Yeah, because there is times where you think, you know, I'm really hard done by, mm. or you you think, you know, I might spend the next hour feeling sorry for myself, and then you take a step back and you go, what the fuck, what the fuck would I feel sorry for? Me? I have everything now, everything I've ever wanted, and all I ever want, all truthfully deep down all I ever wanted was a bit of acceptance and when I got that acceptance of myself Yeah uh and then I, I settled down and like I, I found a woman in my dreams and I and I have two kids and I have a job that I love and my life is my life is that good sometimes I, I don't know if I deserve deserve it you know what i mm. and 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 I just again it's just that's about what I'm doing today, I'm, and that's about my recovery. And that's about, uh, uh, as I say, being accepting exactly what I have and not looking, not chasing anything. I'm not really chasing anything anymore. I've got goals. I've got loads of goals. I've got yeah. loads of things I want to do eventually. But uh, I have nothing today that is going to make me any happier than I am. But as I say, I still have goals. I still have things I want to achieve some of them are in football, some of them are outside football, mm. but uh, I still have things that you know that get me up in the morning and drive me on. You know
0: that, like, I suppose for anyone that, that is listening, that maybe isn't overly familiar with your story around in terms of the gambling addiction. <clears throat> like I said, I don't want to go into all the stuff in the past, and I mean, cause remember we were at a, you we were at an event before, and you shared the story about the surgery in in the UK. Mm. Um, I don't know if if, if you're comfortable enough just saying that one. Um, just yeah. to give someone an understanding, and, and I pro- like we will move on from that. Said I don't want this to be an hour conversation around well, that time I, of your life.
1: But. I suppose I suppose the, the thing about about uh, I suffered a back injury two thousand and three, we were off the back of uh, of winning all Ireland. Um, I I literally wanted done anything <laughs> to get back on the field. Yeah, it was very frustrating, and we were going quite well, even though we were beating the first round challenge, the challenge by Monaghan, also challenge by Monaghan that year. You still, you I still knew, back. I still knew we'd we'd end up semi final of or maybe even better. Um, but I got a back injury. I was supposed to go to Dublin and get a, an operation done. Uh, there was another operation I could get done in uh, London, which was a lot more expensive. county board had told me like, there was no way they could afford it. Um, three people come in and sponsor the operation. Jump on a plane, head to Luton Airport, get a taxi from Luton Airport to boot hospital in Luton, get the operation done not allowed to fly that night booked the uh, the the county board of me booked into a hotel over there get to the hotel on the way past uh on the way past from the hospital to the to the hotel I, I see a bookies and I think you know if, if I feel okay when I get into the room I'll uh, I'll give myself a couple of hours of a couple course. hours yeah but I'll, I'll pop out and that's, you know be a grand way to spend the evening like it'll It'll go it'll go by, I can sit down in there, I don't have to, you know. Mm. But anyhow, so being a compulsive gambler, I get to the to the room and I spend all of about ten seconds there, I throw me bag on the on the bed and I walk back up to the bookies, five hundred pound in my pocket, first thing I do is walk up to the counter, get a twenty pound note change, ten or two fibers, get fifteen quid, roll it into the tiniest little ball that you can imagine, stick it deep down into my back pocket. And I start gambling and I win and I lose, I win and I lose, and I lose and I lose and I lose until the only money that's in my pocket is that fifteen quid. And the reason why I kept that fifteen quid is that's how much the taxi was the next morning from the hotel to the airport. That's not taking into account eating or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um so I I sat in the boogies and for the first time it started to affect me physically and I started to shake and I felt myself shaking and I could see there was people in the boogies who were having a look but I didn't care because mm, they didn't know didn't me did know who you are, and I didn't know them and I'd never see them again or hopefully I would never see them again and uh, I rode out a docket and was, uh, for 15 quid and I crumpled it up and I threw it away and I'd done that maybe twice or three times and eventually after sitting there and shaking for the guts of an hour I got up I rode a docket out put 15 quid in the horse the horse was beaten. I'm deflated I want to cry I want to you know, I want to break everyone in the boogies. I want to, you know, I, I just want everything to be over. I want mm-hmm. it to end. And I walk back to the hotel. I set me around for three o'clock. And you're walking back
0: to the hotel having just had surgery on your back deck.
1: Like. Yeah, but I'm walking back to the hotel and I know that in six hours, I'm going to have to get up four hour and a half hours before my flight mm-hmm. and walk eight and a half mile to get, a, uh, to get the plane. And I do that and I get onto the plane uh, and I realise when I get to Dublin I literally cannot move and I wait for everybody to get off the plane and I roll onto my stomach and I manage to get myself to my feet and I walk down off the plane and the whole time I'm thinking this, I mean it, this is it mm. this is a lane in the sand for me This is never. I'm never going to find myself in this situation again because I hate myself and I hate gambling and I hate everything about it and I hate what it does to me and uh, I got home and the next morning I was on the phone trying to hook scam and scheme to get enough, money, get enough money to have another bet. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way gambling sort of went for me, you know, and, and it was, uh, I had a lot of those false dones. Yeah, I had a lot of times right, where I right, right told myself, yeah, really? and, uh, and it all, there always was another, mm. there always was another time until the 12th of October, 2005, and that was me. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I ended up in treatment, and from that point on, my life went in a completely different uh, direction than it than it had been going.
0: Yeah, like first of all, just I know thanks for sharing that story because I know we always talk about going back and having to relive certain memories. I actually don't mind.
1: It's not. I don't actually don't mind going back and reliving uh, reliving stories because. You know, it does take me mm. back to, and it sort of gives you a realisation of where you're at at that time. It's just, yeah. it's not something I, I do every day of the week. Like, you know?
0: like no, I, I, I remember you just saying that story one night when we were, I think we are at an event in Dublin. It was just, it stuck with me, to be honest. And I'm just thinking like, and you reference there saying, right, never going to do that again. And you, and you do do it again. But I suppose, which brings me on nicely to the, to the point where you say, right, no more. Um, And as everyone always talks about the gambler having to get to the rock bottom or the alcoholic having to get to the rock bottom. Um, I suppose the decision to go and get treatment um, obviously was a hard one it took a long time to get to but it obviously had a very lasting impact in your life and one of the things I was thinking might just talk about a little bit was the role of the counsellor so that obviously benefited you greatly at the time from, from a gambling addiction perspective it's something that benefited me greatly from a depression perspective but it's something that you're obviously working in now and have a huge amount of experience and expertise in I suppose it might just be an interesting Conversation around the role Of the counsellor And how it, can, how it can help someone Because I think a lot of Irish people In particular look at it And think America Don't they see like The, the scene from The Sopranos With the, the psychiatrist there People like you go in You know, put your two hands Behind your head And you say Everything that's wrong with me You get a prescription Out you go But yeah. can you explain that that role a little bit better for someone that's listening that's curious about it.
1: Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, when I was first told I was having a one to one counsel, I thought that is fucking brilliant because <laughs> he will fix me and he will cure me, and I'll just yeah, sit back. Sorted after an hour, then. yeah. And yeah. I'll just sit back. I'll just sit back and 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 he will be able to see exactly what's wrong with me and and prescribe whatever needs to be prescribed. But
0: and a three point plan, and I'm done yeah, and the tanks a million.
1: Yeah. Uh, I thought it'd be definitely a faster process. I didn't think it'd still be out of twelve years later, but. The, I suppose the thing about, um, about counsellor and the role of a counsellor is a counsellor is, is only as good as, you know, what mm-hmm. he has sitting in front of him. and The mo- The one thing you need when you're going to a counsellor, if people choose to go to a counsellor, they choose to go to Gambler's Anonymous, or they choose to go into residential care, like, really and truly, the only thing they need is motivation. Mm-hmm. They need the motivation to uh, want to get better. And channel their energy in the right way. Exactly. When I went into treatment and when I went into that counsellor, I was so intent on making sure that this was my time. Mm. And the first day I met my counsellor, he said to me, I know who you are. I know what you've done in football. And we'll never mention football in here unless you bring it up. This is not about football. This is about you. But the biggest thing he said to me was, if you can give this half of what you give football Football. down through the years, Mm. you will have... No problem whatsoever in, you know, finding recovery and finding long-term recovery. And uh, so I took that on board and, and I'm so lucky. I consider myself lucky and faith d- plays a part in it because I do believe that the gay I got, uh, a gay called Danny Cleary, who luckily enough I actually met up uh, recently with, but I was lucky because he was the perfect fit for me. Mm-hmm. And when people go to a counsellor, it doesn't always... You don't always hit it off with a counsellor. And if you don't, go on, move on. Go and look for somebody else. Don't run from them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes a counsellor just isn't a fit for you and maybe that trust isn't there initially. I know it and and the person who's sitting opposite me will know it. But uh, I think the big thing is that, you know, from a counsellor... When I'm counsellor nowadays, the most important thing is just listening to people, Mm -hmm. you know, and being there for people. People figure their own stuff out. Like I, I've had people who I've counselled for. Like that's not something I do nowadays. I don't. I have done it in the past, but I don't sit down. And I don't, you know, counsel people sure. from, uh, you know, for ten sessions or whatever it is. But like I've sat down in front of people and and, like I've, I might have barely said a sentence in an hour, and during that hour they've figured out exactly, you know, mm-hmm. where they're going wrong because. Sometimes all we have to do is voice it. And I was told another thing, like the best counsellor that I'll ever meet will be the gay who's sitting beside me in Gamblers Anonymous. And that's, that has been, I've found that also true in that, you know, they're just there to, they're there to listen to you. And if there's advice to be given, well, then they will give you a certain amount of advice. But that's not a counsellor's job. Mm-hmm. A counselor's counsellor's job is not to give you advice. A counsellor's job is to see what you want. You know, what do you want out of being there first and foremost? Do you have the motivation? And then it's all about figuring it out for yourself, you know?
0: Yeah, like, it's a funny one. And that's why I sort of said, I'd be glad to have this conversation. Because, like, a lot of Irish people, like, not Irish, a lot of people just don't get it. And even, I know when I went to it, I remember thinking, like, I remember the first time I was sitting there in the waiting room, start shaking my anxiety, thinking, what the fuck am I going into here? Like, and why am I here? Um. But I, when I think back now, I think where it falls down for a lot of people, and I was guilty of it too, is, and you you referenced it there, was just waiting for them to go, grand, thanks for telling me that. Now here's bullet point, one, two, three. You do that, here's this, and you're sorted. Um, And it was a couple of weeks, I remember coming out and I was thinking like, is this actually helping? Because the reality was you were talking about stuff that you tried to bury and didn't yeah. want to talk about for so long. And I suppose the thing I was going to ask you is, particularly men in our society is, why do you think we're so poor at... At being comfortable at having those conversations because I read, the, the actual the forward in your book is from, from John and Tony McIntyre, like, yeah. and they said they think we knew you had a problem long before he did or something along those lines. Yeah. And I even know I I've seen issues with my friends. And I'm sure my friends saw issues with me, mm. <clears throat> but for some reason we're always afraid to open up the conversation. And because you you, you you
1: like I always say think like there's a perfectly um, reasonable explanation for that because um, we're so intent nowadays on uh, how we articulate ourselves. And sometimes all you have to say is, what about you? And is there anything I can help you out with? Mm. And if you say that to somebody, the chances are they'll say no. Mm. But they might come back to you in six months and say, remember you said... That's the was, beauty, it? Remember, you, remember you said, was there something? There actually is something. And I think that... That's the big thing. People are not worried about how am I going to say it. Just blurt it out. Just say it in your own way. We all have different ways of saying things. Like I always, I always, I always say about, um, you know, I've had a couple of debates with Joe Brawley, but he'll always beat me with vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean his points, right? <laughs> but he, like, I, I don't have the, I don't have the vocabulary mm-hmm. that he has, and I think it's the same. It's something similar with, uh, you know, with with asking people if if you know, if they have some sort of issue, don't be getting hung up on how you're going to ask them. Mm. You know, it's just get the words out. And that person knows then that you're there for them. My, I had uh, two brothers in particular who badgered me about my addiction and Mm. badgered me about, and like, I was always the one to say to them, no, everything's 100%, everything couldn't be any better, you know. And, well, the strange thing is, you know, they're the guys and my sister as well are are the people who I went to, Mm. you know, in the end, whenever I actually had, well, I don't even know, but went to, you know, they, I suppose came to me and, but they were the people who I shared it with first. And I was able to share with over, over the next week about just the extent of it. Uh, And because I knew that deep down, they knew, and I knew that they had told me they would be there for me Mm. because one of my biggest fears was, uh, Whenever I was, uh, you know, coming to the end of my gambling, one of the biggest things, one of my biggest fears was that I would lose my family, you know, and that I and that they would shun me or give up on me yeah. or whatever it may be, and you know, but you know, deep down, I knew that they'd said to me whatever help I needed, whenever I needed, it was going to be there, to be there. when I caught me on. Do you know
0: what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, you made two really brilliant points there I think the first one is for anyone that's ever looking on at someone that's struggling in any way is it's just to ask the question and show you care and the reality is the first time we're all a sort of it's a default reaction where we say no and am get off me yeah. but I think like, the big point there is, is just to ask the question and, and show you care and there's nothing wrong with the person um, if they, even if they don't come back to you now that they're, they're, the chances are you're probably going to be the person that will come back eventually but on the second point why do you think we innately just shun that off and our first reaction is to try and smack back and say even though you're not okay it puts you on ground
1: the majority of it is a pride thing mm. is, is wanna, that what you think it is yeah because we want to sort it out ourselves yeah. and we don't want to show weakness and that's something that I have always said and I've probably said it that often now that it's sort of you know I'm saying it in autopilot and I need to stop that because it that's a really important, really important. that's a really important point mm. that people need to get and people don't need to hear it as a cliche they need to hear it as in This is exactly, you know, yeah, it's the way it is. That's exactly the way it is. And that's the way it was for me. It was a pride thing. I didn't want people to know that I had an issue because I spent so much of my time and energy putting a front out there that I was the man Mm -hmm. and that I had every single thing in the world going for me and that nothing could faze me and that... Like, a lot of the players that I play against, I played against, like, you know, when I meet them now, they'll say, you know, you are cocky, arrogant, so-and-so, when you play football. And the strange thing <laughs> that they don't know is that I was the reverse of that. Yeah. But that was what I had Projected. to put out there, yeah. Do
0: you think, like, do you think your athletic identity added to that sort of reluctance to to face up to and hide? Because obviously, it's something I've thought about a lot over the years, and I've talked to different people about it. It's like, so from a young age, particularly if you're a good footballer, like, you know, You get attention, you get told you're great and you have lads patting you on the back and saying you're like, you know, you kicked one five today or you saved the penalty today. Like you're brilliant. And just people sometimes without realising it are just constantly building you up and building you up. And it's very hard for a younger person, I think, to actually recognise that, you know. And and do you think that adds to that sort of, that mask or that act that we all feel as if we have to put on then if you're a sports person, as if you're a high profile person?
1: Uh, There's absolutely no doubt that 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 was one of the things that held me back Mm. from from getting into recovery was that as much as I thought it, at, at times it was something I had to do and how great of an idea it was I just couldn't bring myself because I thought no I can't because like look what I've built up and I'm just going to, I can't just let all that go and there was a certain amount, I felt a certain amount of pressure to, to maintain the status quo and maintain the uh, or, uh, or whatever that I uh, that I felt I had built up over the years, and um, that was the thing that sort of added to it. So absolutely, and that is you're right. It's something that's not mentioned that often, like, and that's why, you know, people see you know, people look at people in certain positions and see them as impenetrable. Um, and do you know what? The more people that that come out, and even still today, I find myself. If somebody comes out and says that they were struggling with certain things, there's certain individuals where I go, Holy shit. Mm. They were struggling. Right. I didn't definitely didn't see that coming. And I think that was the thing with me at the time. Like, uh like I I I, I love uh, myself and my wife we love uh, watching a bit of the old reality T V now and again. Uh Master Chef,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> I didn't th- I thought we'd be able to get through I thought we'd be able to get through this without mentioning that. But uh, I'm thinking more uh we like the jungle. That's probably the one that we sort of watch right. all the time. But you know, I was thinking of Ant and Deck and uh you gay Ant McPartland sure. coming out and, and you know he's one of the more recent ones. Mm. Like it probably seems like in the end of the world for that gay uh, like it did for us all whenever we we sort of you know we we sort of started to tackle the demons. But like the, I can only imagine like the good that that will do eventually for people who are trying to tackle the problems that they realise there's a gay that was struggling and he's doing well now. And sports people, you know, on the reverse of that, sports people who come out and, and talk about you know their struggles, even that can be even sexuality yeah. or whatever it is. The more that sports people do that the more that, um, again, we're just lifting that stigma and the more it makes it easier for, for the gay who's coming down the lane. And, you know, I, I think that's, I I hope when my kids are, you know, 18 or 19 or starting to get into that stage where, you know, these things start to build up, that uh, there's a comfort in, in you know, them being able to uh, voice exactly mm-hmm. what's going on I, so I hope society changes enough by the time they are they're that age that you know they're not afraid to they're not afraid to say you know what because this night I am really struggling with something here and I think that slowly but surely as much as as men and and young fathers as much as we we still say that they are aren't great with the feelings mm. um... It, they are getting better, and I just hope that continues to go in that in that way. And the more positive role models they have, then then the better chance to have.
0: Like when you look back now, well, one of the things that struck me because like obviously for the length of your career and how successful it was, like I look and I just think like how the fuck did you do it? Like actually, actually be able to manage those, and you probably, obviously you'd say you, you might not managing them, but actually, but survive that dual existence. Yeah. One of the things that really struck at me, and something I heard you say before, was that you know in terms of football was your escape and, you know, it just got you that hour or two. But I think one of the, the really interesting things, like, so it's not the same for everybody. So for someone else, say like myself, football actually magnified some of the insecurities yeah. and the problems I had. Yeah, in that. I heard you say So it brought it more pressure and it brought different things. And it's just, I think it's an important point too because, you know, what, what's right for me or what's right for you won't always be right for what someone else exactly. is. But do you ever, like, do you ever actually think about how you manage to do, to do, like, to, to, ha- to, to survive that dual existence? Like,
1: I think if you, if I had to take a step back and wonder how I was doing it, then I would have collapsed. Yeah. That's yeah, what I That's what, yeah, I, mean, that's what I was yeah, sort of I, I think it would have collapsed. And I think, you know, that's why I, I say, like, a lot of it's in autopilot mm-hmm. and a lot of it's from memory. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard you you talk about that before and I, and, I, and I agree with you, but you obviously took a step back and looked at exactly what was going on.
0: I, I got to stage where I couldn't survive anymore. That's what. I know it's just really interesting because like, you were able to keep that up and I think the intensity, the intensity of it must have been. Yeah, crazy the intensity at times. of
1: it was insane. But it, we obviously, I we I obviously had just a a, a capacity to shut mm. a lot of it out. Like I mean, like I I could be in absolute depths of despair, drive in the train and get out of the car and literally for the next two and a half hours, zoned out. I could I I would completely forget about mm. it literally it was like stepping out of one world into the other and, and when I got back in that car that world was there again
0: like I was when I was going through the book because it's something I would talk about my own life before I was thinking right it was like how much because football was that escape you how how much it dominated your sort of train of thought and your life and a little bit of that fucking scared me I was looking at it because it brought me back to a certain time where I was solely dependent on football to survive and to feel good and it was like Holy fuck! Like, um, and even though I said because you managed to get through such a large block of that now, and like upon reflection, like was your so the relationship with Gammon obviously was toxic, wasn't good, but like how do you view your relationship with football for a period of your life?
1: Yeah, there was a period of my life where I didn't really enjoy football,
0: mm. but I played it because I knew. Yeah. How does that How does that make you feel when like when you didn't really enjoy it? Like because
1: yeah it, it does it does sadden me like, yeah. you know there's certain aspects of, of being even part of that pa- being part of that team that, that 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 do sadden me like and you know we do meet up from time to time mm-hmm. like and literally boys be like they be talking about certain things that happen like and don't mind them I don't I, I, mm-hmm. I feel that that stays like you know was I really part of this at all sure and that does sadden me you know it does make me emotional it makes me it's mm-hmm. even making me emotional now like but uh, because you were, you, I was part of something special, like mm-hmm. in that. Once not in about winning things. Yeah, but not, I'm, not, I'm, not talking, I'm not talking about winning mm. things. Uh, winning things, and and when I played football, yeah, we won things, and it was lovely, and it was great, and all those things. There was so much more to football than just winning things.
0: What were they for you?
1: The, I think that the sense of achievement of doing certain things with certain people. Um, again, I don't want to get cliche on it, but like when we played with cross, there was like a bond that will never mm. ever be broken. We had a 20, a 20 year, uh, a commemoration of yeah. us winning our first all All-Ireland and we had everybody together and honestly mm. we got into a room at the back of the club and it was exactly like it you was just, just twenty it. years ago. You just feel it like yeah and the same boys were taking the piss mm. out of the same people <laughs> and uh do you know what? Yeah. We are still cracking the same shitty yeah. jokes but, but everybody still laughing. fucking laughing at them. Yeah. And there was something about the amount of time mm. that you spend we were spending with those boys. And it's the same with the county boys. Uh There's something about the amount of time... Like, I I, I spent whatever amount of years playing football across, 20 years or, or whatever it was at Senior level, maybe even more, maybe 21. And for 21 years, I went in and sat in the same, same fucking league. place yeah. in, in the change room. And I sat beside the same person until, unfortunately... Uh, he was taken away from us and somebody else filled in and I sat beside them and but I always maintain I always maintain that position in the change room and at different times young people come, young lads come in and they're fucking having a clue where am I supposed get to sit fuck, get out of and my seat they're, I like an, and like they're sitting in my seat and, and I'm trying to want to try and make them as much a part of it as possible yeah. there's no fucking way they're, out they're out sitting my in my seat <laughs> you know so uh, I you know it's so it's much more than it's much more than just than just winning mm. things with with people it's but it was a, was a special time to play to play football and again just to go back on it like it that does sadden me sometimes that you know there's a lot of what i did playing football that i don't have really that much of a recollection of mm. you know so i suppose that's sad in a way but
0: that's again, there's also
1: huge positive memories. And- oh, yeah, there's huge positive memories. But do you know what? That's a good kick in the ass for me too sometimes. Mm. You know, that's, you know, going back to the addiction stuff, like that's a good kick in the arse for me sometimes too to realise that, you know, it, it took that away from me too. You know what? I'm never going to let it take anything from me again. And that's great motivation mm. to, you know, just. Sharpen's perspective just, yeah
0: just stay away yeah. one of the reasons that I'm doing this series is, is around the GPA obviously do their, their former players event every year in Crow Park and so I'm trying to just capture different different lads different stories and I suppose one of the big things as we sort of move towards the end of this is around transitioning out of the game and for someone like yourself who we've talked about it quite openly and honestly there how important it was how passionate you are about it how, how difficult was that transition out or because of the place that you're at were you able to manage it much better or was it a release I, I don't know
1: it was something i it was something i fretted about mm. and yet for me honestly transition has been great uh because i realized that uh my time was i knew my team was completely up, up whenever i stopped playing and my my uh my finishing playing didn't have the fairy tale ending that it probably should have had or that had circumstances been different that it would have had. What was your last game? Last game was an all club semi-final against St. Bridget's in Mullingar that I started the game and I shouldn't have started the mm-hmm. game. I did something the week before the game that I never did before in my life. I went up on my own, took a bag of balls, started of free kicks, tore me a quad and still got an injection, got laser, got whatever I needed to get and still yeah. wasn't fit to play the game. And uh, we were beaten and... That was I was taken off after twenty minutes and we bowed out because I couldn't move. I could literally couldn't move. Could one foot in front of the other. Mm. I was probably playing. The, honestly, I was playing as good a football as I, as I was when I was twenty. Mm.
0: And You're obviously a lot freer though in your own mind absolutely. and body. Like, absolutely, maybe not body but mind certainly.
1: I was I was with a I was with a, a personal trainer yeah. four and five days a week mm-hmm. because I knew I had to do it and that was I was just doing that to even get through. The training the games, and
0: but at that stage, you're choosing to play for the enjoyment of I'm guessing rather than going saying, Get me out of here for two hours, please. It's oh, yeah, absolutely. Difference. Yeah,
1: it's like my i consider my footballing career to have two different stages that was the stage in addiction and the stage in recovery. Yeah. And I remember one of the first games I played, uh, in recovery, and it was like it was like a fool that was just let out into the field, buckle up around the yeah, place. Yeah, I was, I was skipping along, and I was loving it. Yeah. And uh, and so that my uh, I would say my football career had two different stages. Mm. Say, but even at thirty eight, like thirty eight, like I felt I felt great. Just picked up that injury, and I thought I was starting to pick up a few niggles here yeah. and there, a wee bit easier, and I was finding it harder to get rid of them. And uh, so I was very ready to stop playing. Mm. And then I went to matches for a year, watching cross, and I was like. I I couldn't not handle it. I needed to get back involved, mm. and I spent two years myself, and John Mack, managing, and then my last year with, with cross seniors was last year. I did I did coaching, and I really enjoyed that. I didn't really enjoy the management, to mm. be honest. I enjoyed the coaching, and um,
0: why do you think the coaching was was it was more enjoyable than the managing?
1: I just I just I just don't I don't I didn't really enjoy. I, I think it was a tame thing because mm. I think you need to be talk if you're a manager, you need to be talking to players a lot. Sure.
0: If the coach can just worry about their Yeah, like,
1: half. like with with Garrett, like he would give me, a, you know, a, a remit of what sort of was going wrong. And then I go and I develop, yeah. a, a, okay. you know, something that is going to try and counteract that or try yeah. and rectify it for the next day. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, in particular, coaching would be a passion of mine. But the management didn't really suit me. And then I realised that I have two young kids and I, re- I realised that I need to give them some time. So I've mm-hmm. taken a bit of a step back from it now, you know.
0: Now, look, the last question we finish up is we've chat football, chat in the past and everything. I think it's only right that we finish up with sort of what your plans are for, for, I suppose, what life is now and what your plans are for the future. <clears throat>
1: life is now, life is... Life is trying to create as good a balance as I can. Uh, I suppose from a football point of view, I've I've done little bits and pieces with certain teams Mm. um, and I have, with the under sixes in the club, um, that is a pretty stressful hour every That must
0: be so different from the world that you're used to, is it?
1: Well, it is. And and I love it because you could be you could be uh bob the builder you could be wearing a clowns outfit you could be doing whatever you um could be you know you could be who, whoever there's no such thing as you know i'm oshie mcconville yeah. you know and you can't i, get lost I have been successful in the past or i have. they don't, don't give care. one rat <laughs> and I include yeah. my own kids yeah. I include care. my own kids in that they just want to get as much enjoyment yeah. out of that hour as they can, and whether that be throwing stones at the barracks, <laughs> or whether, or whether that be throwing stones at each other, or <laughs> fighting, or throwing water at each other, or whatever yeah. it is, it's fun. It is, yeah. And and I I have to say that it's it is stressful because you're not throwing stones at the barracks. Well, I can do something, <laughs> uh, but I think that the big thing is that it can be stressful because. At Sexes, you're not quite sure whether, you know, you need to be teaching as many of the skills yeah. as you need to be and how much time is left for fun. And and then you just, like, you go, I would have, have serious plans. Like, I would have a serious plan of what session I was doing. And you go up and you realise... Okay. But see that piece of paper you have with you, just fucking <laughs> crumple it up and throw it in the bin because uh, they've they've ripped up the script they've ripped up the script here completely. Too hyped, but, I don't do hyper tonight. So so that's sort of what I'm at, you know, yeah. from a from a work point of view, I work for smartmore Castle just outside RD and I do mainly interventions mm. for them. So people who are in trouble, whether that be family interventions or or otherwise, and uh, so that's what I'm doing from, from from across. Obviously, yeah. There's a nice bit of media stuff. You know, at certain times of the year as well, which is great. Do you enjoy that? I do enjoy yeah. that. I do enjoy that because it's just really shooting the breeze, isn't mm-hmm. it? About football. You and know, some people, some people like- can think that. Some. I don't. I wouldn't be. I was gonna say I wouldn't be vain enough, but I probably would be vain enough. but and I probably would have a big enough ego, but I wouldn't have a big enough ego that you know whatever I say you know goes, mm-hmm. or whatever I say is gospel or anything like that you're not saying people are welcome to uh to contradict me and i i enjoy that and it's the same way as i've got mates and we all have a sort of like an opinion on certain things Mm. football wise and we would have a we could have a good bit of banter over it and i i would see i would see the same thing about you know when you're chatting about uh certain games that it's important you take it seriously and, and you know what your job is and you know what your responsibilities are, but it's also, you know, important to realise that, you know, there's a, like my mum is 81, she's seen more football than I've ever seen yeah. and she's got an opinion on it. Mm. And I would never tell her that, you know, that opinion doesn't count because it does and everybody's opinion counts, but mm. it's just like, just because you're getting paid for it, it just means that, you know, you get... People a lot more people get to hear, you. sure. And sometimes you have a certain influence in, in those things, and I try not to, uh, I suppose, have too much of an influence and let everybody make up their own mind in certain games, you know. And just the last
0: part of that question, then future.
1: Future is like I, I do see coaching in my future. Mm-hmm. Um, I, whenever I stopped playing Gaelic football, I said that there was only two teams I would. I would manage and that will be crossing our I sort of think, still think the same on that. But I suppose, you know, coaching is something that I say is a passion of mine and something that, you know, I, I would be interested mm-hmm. in doing and furthering that and improving that. I'm also with uh, DKIT, Dundalk Institute Technology. You know, they've gone into Sakerson this year. So we have, I I would like to think that in five years time or three years time that, we would be a team that would be able to put it up to the big boys. And it's nice to have that. Mm. It's nice to have that little goal. And it's nice to be part of that planning. Medium term project. Yeah, because it's much more than just uh, putting a team out to play. It's about trying to get players in.
0: Mm.
1: It's about trying to make sure that they're happy uh, academically. Uh, Happy, you know, in themselves. Happy where they're studying happy, you know, with the fact that they've chosen to come here and and that, you know, we're trying to, as I say, we're trying to build something. It's not going to happen this year, mm. not going to happen next year, but you never know, it's something that could happen down the line. When I first went there, you know, literally, you know, we were also surrounds. we won two Trench Cups in a row, which unfortunately <laughs> means we have to go up and play a sacred against DCU and UCD and teams like that. But I suppose that's, as you say, that's sort of like a medium term goal. That
0: that's what just it just struck me there is because you know, especially a club management even in Intercounty now, it's sort of like a one year and you're on your bike or two years. It's you're, at the back of your mind, you're looking for something that's a bit more, a bit more of a project. Um, I think the project
1: is you know with with the college. Yeah, I think that's that's the project for now, and I suppose whether Inter county comes calling down the road, I'm not 100% mm. sure. It's something, like, that, you know, i always be open to, but it's a tame thing as well, like, you know, the kids are getting older, and, like, they want to go to football matches now, and I have to be, I have to, you know, I have to be responsible for that, and that yeah. I have to give them time, and so, it's just a balancing act, and that's what i would be telling people all the time. Like, you know, i would tell telling people that every, it's trying to get a bit of balance in your life. And yet I'm saying that out loud and I'm thinking, start listening to yourself because yeah. I need the balance as well. My balance at the minute, I would say is as good as it can be pretty much perfect. If you ask mm-hmm. me, but, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of keeps trying to keep it there. And when somebody, you know, it's having the ability sometimes to say no, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I actually did a, I actually did a cookery demonstration last week in at a Tay show and the Master Chef
0: legacy lives on.
1: Yeah, Conor McManus <laughs> texted me and he said, "You really need to find a way to say no." <laughs> with, a, with a photograph attached of me in an apron, and I thought that's actually a good point, you know. But uh, so
0: that's uh, the most important thing for me is just trying to maintain that, balance. that balance. Yeah, hundred percent. No, listen, we will leave it there. Just. From my perspective, just thanks a million for yeah, your honesty no problem, there. Thank you for the insight. It was an incredibly interesting chat. One I really enjoyed and I know and that listens to it will definitely take an awful lot away. So thanks a million for that and best of luck with everything moving forward. Thanks, enjoyed it. Man. Well, that's it for this week and what a conversation it was. I'd just like to thank Ushine from the bottom of my heart for his honesty over the course of the last hour. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Gaelic Players Association who are hosting a former players event in Crow Park on September 16th. It's an amazing gathering that will bring together 540 past players from all over Ireland to recognise the wonderful contributions that they've made to our games. I hope you enjoy getting to hear from many more of these legends in the coming weeks. So make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher by searching for Real Talks. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at aom the cat. That's aom the cat, a terrible college nickname that I still haven't managed to shake off. My name is Alan O'Mara, and you've been listening to episode 11 of the Real Talks podcast.